0: All right, if people could uh, get a seat quickly, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. So we're about to open the second of the plenary sessions here at Media in Transition. Uh, this event centers on collaboration and collective intelligence, two words that are being discussed with growing frequency in the, our era of networked culture, or Web 2.0, or convergence culture, or whatever we want to call this present present moment. Sort of a symptom of convergence is that this event, like the other plenaries, is being simulcast into Second Life, and I wanted to welcome our the people in Second Life to the conference uh, and remind them that they should be feel free to propose questions themselves, and if we get any questions from Second Life, which we thought might be more common at this session, uh, we, will, we will have them read out and be included in the discussion that takes place here. So we welcome questions through the question function in Second Life, as well as questions from the floor as we get mo- moving. Um, it's my privilege to introduce the, day's, the moderator for the session is Thomas W. Malone. He's the Patrick J. McGovern Professor of Management at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He's also the founder and director of the new MIT Center for Collective Intelligence and the author of the recent book, The Future of Work. He's published more than 75 articles, research papers, and book chapters, has 11 patents. He's one of those MIT minds that's everywhere and does everything. And some of us in the room will remember him as being an early thinker about games and education, Uh, Something that's ancient history for him, but is still actively being perused by those of us who are looking seriously about educational games today. So let me turn it over to, to Tom.
1: Thank you. Thank you and good evening. Let me start by asking you two pairs of questions. The first question is, how many of you have ever looked at a page in Wikipedia? Okay, and how many of you have ever made at least one edit in Wikipedia? Okay, great. Now, second pair of questions. How many of you have ever done a search using Google? (laughs) And second question in that pair. How many of you have ever created a web page or created content that someone else put on a web page? Okay. For those two pairs of questions, everyone who raised your hand for the second in each pair helped create the collective intelligence that was used by the people who raised their hands in the first of each pair. So it looks like most of you have not only taken advantage of collective intelligence, but also helped create it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about collective intelligence. Now, there are a lot of ways to define collective intelligence. The way I like best is a very simple way. I would define collective intelligence as groups of individuals acting collectively in ways that seem intelligent. (laughs) Now, of course, it's possible for groups of individuals to act with collective stupidity, as well as with collective intelligence. But by this definition of collective intelligence, clearly there's been collective intelligence at least as long as there have been humans, families, countries, companies, tribes, teams, all these kinds of groups of individuals at least sometimes act with some degree of collective intelligence. But in the last few years, we've seen a new kind of collective intelligence things like Google, Wikipedia, eBay, et cetera, these are examples of collective intelligence occurring on a scale and in a way that would never have been possible before the information technology, especially the Internet, that enables them today. And I think we've seen only the beginning. I think we're going to see lots, lots more examples of collective intelligence like this, and in order to understand, to take advantage, to predict anything about these new kinds of collective intelligence, we need to understand them at a much deeper level than we do so far. There's an, there's an overflow. I would remind people that we're televising outside, so if they can't sit here, they can sit outside. And it's being piped outside. Okay. <laughs> I've been asked to increase the collective intelligence of this group by telling you that there is an overflow uh, room outside, so if you can't sit in here... There's plenty of room outside where you can watch everything on the screen. Do you feel more intelligent now? (laughs) Okay. So I think we're about to see a lot of very new kinds of collective intelligence. But in order to take advantage of those, we need to understand those things at a much deeper level than we do today. And that's the goal of our new center at MIT called the Center for Collective Intelligence. The core research question we've posed for ourselves is how can people and computers be connected so that collectively they act more intelligently than any person, group, or computer has ever done before? Now, in order to do that, in order to connect people and computers to act more intelligently than any groups of any of them have ever done before, you need to do at least two things. You need to collect the right people and computers, and you need to connect them in the right ways. So let me give you just two really quick examples that I think are interesting suggestions of what's possible in those dimensions. First is an example of the NASA Click Workers Project. Uh, it turns out that one of the things planetary scientists need to do is to count the number of craters on the surface of whatever planet they're studying. Uh, This is a necessary but difficult, tedious, time-consuming task. It's often done, I suspect, by graduate students (laughs) rather than professors. But a few years ago, NASA tried an experiment where they put a bunch of photos of the surface of the planet Mars up on the web, and they let anyone who wanted to mark craters on those photos. The way you mark it is by clicking four points on the edge of the crater. That defines a circle. A little red circle is drawn. It's actually kind of fun. I did it myself. And it turned out that by doing this, uh, they got over 80,000 people to volunteer on this site. They identified over 2 million craters on the surface of the planet of Mars. And most importantly, they found that the average of those volunteer ratings were just as accurate as the ratings done by professional scientists. So here's an example of how they were able to involve lots more people and lots more non-experts in a way that still turned out to be very useful. Second example I'd like to give you is the story of Garry Kasparov versus the world. Garry Kasparov, as many of you know, was the world chess champion in 1999 when this event was held. He played a chess game versus anyone else in the world who wanted to play as one collective team. Each side had 24 hours for each move. The world involved, I believe, thousands of people who could see his move, of course. They could talk to each other on an online bulletin board. There were about five chess experts who gave commentary on each move and suggestions about things to do. But at the end of the 24-hour period, the world's moves were determined by majority vote of all the people participating. Before they did this, Kasparov was a heavy favorite because lots of things like this that had been tried before the, the teams of the world had done terribly. In this case, Kasparov did win. It took something like 62 moves. And he said at the end, it was the hardest game he'd ever played in his life. In fact, he believed it was the best game in the history of chess. So that illustrates, (laughs) he may not have been exactly uh, unbiased in that, but that illustrates an interesting way not only of collecting a lot of people, but of connecting a lot of people in an interesting way. Now in this spirit, we're trying a bunch of things at the Center for Collective Intelligence. Uh, We're trying to write a business book Wikipedia style. We've got over 4,000 people registered for that project now. We've got a project where we hope to collect the the intelligence or to harness the collective intelligence of thousands of people all over the world (coughs) to help figure out what to do about global climate change. We've got a project where we hope to couple human intelligence and machine intelligence to make predictions about things like sales of products, or the outcomes of different medical treatments for specific individual patients, and a variety of other things. So that, I hope, is an introduction for our topic, and now we're about to hear some, I hope, and I think, provocative thoughts and examples from our three panelists. Our first panelist is Trevor Schultz, who's an assistant professor and a researcher in the Department of Media Studies at the State University of New York at Buffalo. He's also a research fellow at the Hochschule for Kunst und Gestaltung in Zurich. He's the founder of a, a sort of distributed international institute called the Institute for Distributed Creativity. And he's contributed essays to books, journals, periodicals, and co edited a book called The Art of Free Cooperation. Trevor.
2: Okay, Welcome, everybody. So I will uh, speak for a very short time, uh, seven minutes we were asked to speak, so I will really make a very, um, hopefully, uh, complicated argument in a very short time. So maybe we can elaborate on that, Of sure need to elaborate on this later. So I give the title, uh, What the MySpace Generation Should Know About Working for Free given uh, the state of the public sphere and a sort of uh, very kind of hostile environment, many, much of sociality is pushed in the uh, online world, right? So we have uh, much uh, substance that can, can be brought forward to, um, to show that this is uh, the case with some Uh, 51 to 170 million people in uh, MySpace with some 80 million people in Facebook, there's certainly a move towards uh, towards the web, right? And if we think of uh, all the uh, collective intelligence that was described just now, uh, we really think more of uh, a kind of very strong affect and fun and leisure and relaxation and dating and all these activities that... uh, you know, come with that. Uh, what we don't really think so much of is labor, right? And I really want to talk about uh, labor. Uh, I start with the uh, Italian autonomist, uh, Paolo Verno, who really talks about labor in terms of uh, really it, not lo- it no longer producing a- an object per se, but really being a virtuosic performance, the act of being a speaker. If you think of people posting on YouTube or contributing, uh, to Myspace, updating their site on Myspace, uh, this is what we would think of um, as labor. This is what I talk about here as labor. So what are these uh, people actually doing, these uh, participants, right? They comment, tag, rank, forward, read, subscribe, repost, collaborate, favorite, and they flirt, you know, they play, chat, gossip, discuss, and learn, right? So what happens really is that uh, life itself, you could say, is put to work, Right? It's commercialization of uh, social life itself. Uh, if you think of Harriet Klausner, who uh, is a librarian who reads uh, two books a day and reviews them on Amazon, she has written 13,314 reviews for Amazon for free. And of course, on the other hand, she also benefits from this, right? It's not that this is some kind of uh, uh, you know, exploitation per se, right? She, she gets a lot out of this as well. Uh, But look at this. If we think of labor, so we have um, MySpace being bought by News Corp for uh, $583 million. You have uh, YouTube being bought for $1.6 billion. Um, And now you have uh, an estimated value of MySpace over the next three years of $15 billion. Where does this value come from? It is exactly this collective intelligence that we describe here. And uh, all virtual world combines, not just Second Life, uh, are estimated to have a value of $10 billion. So, of course, you would immediately argue, and I'm sure many uh, people in the audience will immediately say, well, wait a minute, you know, it's an incredib- incredible, expensive, arduous process to support all the social life online, right? All these server farms, the programmers, and it's a very difficult uh, endeavor. This is surely true. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you, know, you should also see the balance between what is basically taken in and what's what is uh, uh, Invested in these structures on the other hand Uh, Another argument that comes up in this context is that uh, it really takes big business to support such a social life online Right and I wonder uh, if you look at all these things like Facebook or MySpace It wasn't big business who started them right it was actually students and then it was sort of passed on Um, so Together with uh, Nicholas Carr, I would argue that the very, very few um, benefit on the back of the very, very many, right? So it's basically just good old capitalism, right? It's nothing uh, particularly special, right? So what you see is that uh, it basically replicates uh, offline structures uh, online, right? It's this classic uh, pyramid. So there's a centrality to the web, which you may have heard this, that basically 40% of all traffic online is uh, eaten up by only 10 pages, right? This is uh, Google, Sina, you know, three of them are Chinese, MySpace, of course. Uh, And this centrality is really, uh, to a large extent, generated through uh, user-generated content, right? Um, And, you know, 60% of the web uh, are created by you and 40% uh, through You know, corporately uh, content created through corporations. Um, Okay, so just as a kind of uh, one aspect of this would be uh, outer concentrated uh, media, right? This sort of monopoly that this creates, which uh, with News Corp owning all of these companies, and you know this argument, and many of you will roll their eyes, I'm sure. But then think of this, and this actually makes, uh, I think, uh, a lot of people really quite nervous, right? This announcement of MySpace now to turn this monopoly and all these people into, uh, and feed them basically Fox News, right? To give a new stream into MySpace to boost um, revenue. And uh, this all given that almost 12% of all time that Americans spend online is actually spent on MySpace, right? So it's really, it's, you know, no peanuts. Um, and this is amplified, and maybe uh, Mimi can speak to this uh, later, uh, through the connection between the social networks and um, the telecommunication uh, companies, the telecos, right? So now you can very easily meet uh, at a party and directly shoot your photos up to Facebook. In fact, some of my students, they have these parties where uh, they, it's all about just taking photos for Facebook. They hardly would talk anymore, right? <laughs> Um, okay, I talked about these uh, numbers before. Uh, this is one of these uh, 10 highest traffic sites. I'm not sure how many ever uh, have seen the site, right? Sina.com. Um, okay, so how does business actually uh, you know, use uh, these, the social life in these sites uh, to their advantage, right? Well, for one, there's the obvious, right? It's the sort of click economy. So you have this attention that's paid to it, the eyeballs on these sites, Uh, for 12% of the time that Americans spend online, they actually look at the site, and obviously this gives a great opportunity to introduce ads. The content, uh, if you look at Facebook, uh, it's very straight about this. All content you upload to Facebook belongs to Facebook, and they can do whatever they want with it. Uh, The profiles, the dream of every market researcher, right? 170 million profiles. Wow, right? Consumption, so you can uh, buy music and so on in MySpace. Transaction commissions like on eBay. Uh, and then spam, spam, and you know, more spam. But on the other hand, it's really a paradox, right? It's really a paradox of labor. So because this is really what people get out of it too, right? They gain friendships. They can share their life experiences. They can archive their memories. They, you know, they're getting jobs. Think of LinkedIn. They find dates, You know, you could say it's sort of like being on a mag job while actually having fun and getting a lot of dates. Uh, Gaining fame, you know, think of the, uh, you know, Chinese backstreet boys. uh, You know, there are many other examples. Uh, They can egocast, look that up in the dictionary, as well as contribute to the greater good, right? Social enjoyment, pleasure of creation. Okay, so then, of course, there's uh, also a, you know, as uh, Lawrence Lessig also points out in uh, Code 2.0, of course, a strong ideology to this uh, code, right? So here, for instance, in Facebook, you have uh, this selection that's uh, uh, given to people between male and female, whereas actually many students would probably also want to opt in for a transgender option that's not uh, there, and I don't know if that's something that you came across. So again, this is what I talked about, about property in Facebook. Uh, They basically make it very clear if you actually do read the small print uh, that uh, you basically completely sort of hand over this content to them and also that all the profiles uh, uh, that you, uh, all the personal information that you uh, upload is uh, added through aggregated information from other sites so they can uh, create, um, you know, a database of, so this is what people give away, right? This is kind of what I'm talking about. They give away their favorite music, books, uh, pictures, jobs, education, birth, you know, sexual orientation. All of this is sort of fed to uh, these sites. Okay, and so now you could say, well, uh, this kind of maybe neoliberal argument where you could say, uh, well, they could just leave, right? And I would uh, argue and, uh, that basically they cannot leave because all the community, their friends, and also all their content is there, right? So the 700,000 people who demonstrated or like protested against Facebook when they introduced the RSS feed may be more of a testimony to the fact that you cannot leave and actually really have to do something about it because you are locked. So it's more like a captive audience. Um, You see the advertisements, of course, on these sites. The spam I talked about. Uh, This argument by Nicholas Carr brought up already in 2005, or similar arguments. Lawrence Nessick talking about the ethics of all of this, uh, distinguishing uh, true and fake sharing sites. And now, just like to end up uh, as with a sort of positive example, uh, and Corey being right here, um, intellectual property, I think, is a big one, right? A big issue. I will come back to this, which I think is served well in uh, Second Life. this is a tool that I developed in this uh, context for educators, sort of like a YouTube MySpace for educators, which is non-for-profit and uh, purely for educational purposes. Just sort of as an example, it's a standalone software. Um, and this is kind of like where I would see and um, where I would point, want to, point to, right, is uh, basically hybrids and non-profit alternatives to social media giants. There are some of them that you may be familiar with here and as my last slide somewhat rushed, uh, but you uh, will still sort of hopefully have this sink in, is basically what I would argue for is to give net publics a full control over their content and especially pay attention to the exit costs, right, to actually make it easier for people to leave, right, because which is really something that is very, very hard in these very sort of monopolized gigantic sites right now. Uh, I would suggest to increase transparency so that things that I up in the, dug up in the small print of MySpace and Facebook would actually be on the forefront, actually very clear that people know very clearly what happens to their content and to their profiles, uh, that people really get a fair share of the money that uh, they create through the ad revenue. And YouTube is an example of that, but uh, that is maybe something we could discuss further. Further on, and to actually make all this work and make people really uh, empowered to use these sites in a responsible way that is sort of in sync with their own values, it of course needs uh, media literacy, right? It needs skills that address uh, participatory cultures. And that's it. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Okay, thank you. So our next panelist is Corey Andreka. He's the Chief Technology Officer for Linden Lab, the creator of Second Life, from which we just saw a brief picture. Uh, At at Linden Lab, he heads the team developing the whole software infrastructure and hardware infrastructure and everything, I guess, for Second Life. He also is in a certain sense the, um, I suppose you could say the lawyer for second life if not for Linden lab <laughs> he's, he's saying no 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 but he, he did say earlier in his bio that he spearheaded the decision to allow users to retain the intellectual property rights to their own creations on Linden lab so he did something opposite of what Trevor was just saying was bad so I assume he Trevor would say this was good and uh, <laughs> and uh, Corey also helped craft Lyndon's virtual real estate policy. In his uh, in his prior life, uh, I didn't know this until uh, today, he was an officer in the U.S. Navy and worked at the National Security Agency as well as graduating from the Navy Nuclear Power School. Corey.
3: Thank you. So it's... It, It's sort of ironic, perhaps, that working on a a visual product like Second Life, I will be here without slides, but, um, you know, I thought with only five minutes, it might be more fun um, to, A, listen to what was talked about today, listen to what um, was talked about before I went on, and uh, try to stick to the five minutes and get us into questions, because I think that's going to be more fun, absolutely, for all of us. Now, the great thing is Linden Lab, the company that creates Second Life, actually has deep ties to, to Tom, perhaps even more so than he realizes. We'd been operating and had launched Second Life for a little bit less than a year when Future of Work came out, and we crossed paths with, uh, with Tom at a conference called Supernova, and Future of Work sort of made the rounds within the, the Linden Brain Trust, and we all read this and went, wow, he's, he's really right, and we need to think about how to build out a company, because we had about, you know, 14, 15 employees at that point. And a lot of the decisions we've made in terms of how to build Linden Lab have actually been drawn from this idea of trying to make a radically distributed internal culture, which when you think about it is sort of interesting, because here we are building this radically decentralized product in Second Life while ourselves trying to maintain a decentralized structure internally. And I'm not nearly smart enough to know whether uh, the one, you know, the former requires the latter, but it certainly has influenced things in a lot of deep ways. Um, I'm going to cheat and use some notes on my sidekick here. You know, technology will save me. Um, Is anybody going to admit to not knowing what Second Life is in this crowd? (laughs) Yes, okay. So, So Second Life, in case you don't know what it is, it's not a game, it's not a website, it's a virtual world created by its users. It's a platform. We put out a set of technologies, a set of protocols, software. People use it. Everything they build within it, they own they can sell, they can transfer, they can move around. And we don't have intellectual property rights in what they create other than as was discussed earlier today. We do pull back the right to use it in things like advertising and being able to give talks like this one if I actually had slides. Otherwise, it would be really hard to put up a picture of Second Life and just have redacted all over it because, you know, we can't actually show you anything. And so that's really unlike conventional games. Conventional games get built, you spend, you know, 20, 50, 100 million dollars building content, you put it on a disc, you ship it to people, they consume it, game over. So that's, you know, probably the largest single difference. Also, games have signal characteristics, right? You're all familiar with this. Games have artificial conflict, they have sets of outcomes. Second Life doesn't have any of those things. And so that's sort of Second Life in a nutshell. How big is Second Life is sort of relevant in these discussions, certainly not you know, MySpace MySpace or Facebook scale. We have about 6 million people who have registered um, somewhere in excess of 4 million who have used it. Um, You can look at it physical scale, the amount of area simulated. um, is about 650 square kilometers, so a relatively large area. That's the size of, like, Singapore. So country scale in terms of size. Um, In terms of economy, uh, it's about $60 million a month in GDP. So the internal economy within within Second Life is about 60 million U.S. dollars. So three-quarters of a billion dollar annual GDP, which is Grenada. So, you know, not Singapore, sadly, because that would be really cool. Um, And so um, the foreign exchange, so the amount of money people take out of Second Life, convert into U.S. dollars, is about $8 million in in March. So that's the amount of money that people are saying, well, we'll exchange this because we want more of the in-world currency, which, of course, is not a currency. It's a valueless, limited license-use right. Uh, called the Linden dollar, um, but it's, it is absolutely not a currency because, after all, governments don't like it when you make currencies, uh, unless you're another government, which we're not, um, which was interesting because the panel earlier today kind of brushed on that topic, and let's be clear, we're not a government. We're a corporation, right? Our goal is to stay in business and continue to be in business and to grow, which is a very different relationship with the people using your product than if you're, you're a government so how does all this tie into collective intelligence or and certainly into things like peer production? Well, because all of these people are creating Second Life, we can do things like aggregate the value of the creations, right? 60 million U.S. dollars. Um, there are 340,000 hours a day of time spent in Second Life, and about 20% of that is spent building stuff. So if you do the math, you end up with... a about 34 user years per day of content creation, which doesn't seem like that much until you multiply it out because that's a 13,000-person content creation team, which if I had to hire, would be $1.3 billion a year. Instead, they pay us to use Second Life. So certainly, collectively, they're doing quite a bit in creating a tremendous amount of value. So that's kind of cool. In terms of the collective intelligence side, like what are they doing broadly together? I think there are a few interesting examples. Um, so NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, built a project in Second Life to do collaborative uh, consumption of weather data. So take weather data and allow people from all over the world to look at the weather data together. And some users in Second Life basically belted it out for, you know, like tens of dollars and to them to do this. Which is fun, because if it had been several years ago, it might have been impossible to do this. And what's neat about that is we all sort of have this feeling that we're more intelligent together. And so now you have this ability to look at weather trends and actually consume it together while talking about what you're consuming, right? The difference between this and the web, because this is important, is that the web is a predominantly solo experience. As much as we talk about things being, you know, community on the web, it's this past-the-megaphone style of community, right? Think about a blog, right? You climb to the top of the hill with your megaphone, and you yell. And then you hand the megaphone to the next person who climbs up to the top of the hill and tells you that you're stupid, right? You know, because that's what blogging is all about. And so, right, that's, that's, not, that's not community as we think about it. That's not how we tend to communicate. There is no sense of having an audience, right? A huge part of the value of this talk has less to do with, with what I say and more to do with all the conversations you guys are going to have when you leave this room, right? That's the importance of having the audience. And in Second Life, because you're there collaboratively consuming this content, you are part of a community as you consume it. The people who are watching this in Second Life, when I'm done talking, they can all go to a dance club in Second Life and hang out and talk about all the dumb things Corey said, right? That's a possibility that you don't have when you're just watching a webcast, which is a, which is a massively parallel solo experience. The one other interesting example, and I'm going to wind down here and stay on time. Um, So Aloft, it was a um, Starwood Hotel brand that came into Second Life, you know, purely commercial example. So they came in and they were going to do a brand awareness play. They were going to build their hotel that was going to generate a press hit and they would get attention. Hooray, right? So they did this. And then what they noticed was sort of interesting is that as people were wandering through their hotel that they had built, they started saying things like, I don't like the lobby. I don't know where to go when I walk in the lobby, and I don't like where you put the chairs. We're going to go sit over here. So they started surveying people as they came through, and then they started watching where people were going and generating aggregate data on where people moved through this space. They've since taken down their hotel and announced to the community in Second Life that they're actually re-architecting major parts of their hotel design. Right? So here you have an example of community design, right, where this group were able to, to influence this, this, this hotel brand and actually feel that they're a very part of the creative act. Um, and while it not, wasn't you know, designed by committee, let's be clear that none of us want to participate in that. Um, and so, and this was pretty interesting. And the, When the CEO of Starwood has talked about this, he's been very upfront of they didn't expect this. They didn't think that this would work or would be possible. Um, and the final example you know, of, of collective intelligence in second life. So our users love to give us positive feedback. Well, feedback, well... Negative feedback, actually. <laughs> and one of the things that they're very certain about is that they know far better than we do how Second Life should run and what kinds of technologies it should use, which they have a, probably more awareness of some of the problems than I do because they spend more time there. And so there's enough desire for feedback that one of the industries that's, ex- that's supported within Second Life is the creation of protest signs. Because there are enough protests that there is a cottage industry in making these protest signs and generating really cool, interesting protest animations so you can stand there waving your sign. And so they protested everything from the initial economic structure to the physical simulation technology we use. And, you know, this is another interesting example, right? The, the, a group rising up and saying, we're going to protest. Because how do you protest in a virtual world? Will you go to the location where people, new users are arriving, and you protest there. Why? Because it slows down new user acquisition, right? That's a pretty good way to get us to pay attention. And so, and in in one case, we ended up completely changing how we did taxation and everything else in the world, in some ways because of this feedback. And so what's interesting is you have a community being able to figure out collectively what the right mechanism was, you know, to to give us feedback and get back to us. Um, And as much as I don't really like seeing new users coming into Second Life and being greeted by a bunch of people on fire. Because it turned out that the best way to protest is to light yourself on fire <laughs> while waving a protest sign, right? Um, it, it, was still pretty, it was still pretty impressive to watch. And so, you know, with that, I think I will, will turn over to Mimi, who hopefully won't talk about people on fire, and I uh, look forward to your questions.
1: Thank you. Okay, thank you. Our last panelist is Mimi Ito. She's a cultural anthropologist of technology use who focuses on children and youth's changing relationships to media and communications. She's been studying kids and their relationships to culture, to technology, kids' technoculture in Japan and the U.S. She's co-editor of a book called Personal Portable Pedestrian, Mobile Phones in Japanese Life, She's now a research scientist at the USC Annenberg Center for Communication, a visiting associate professor at Keio University in Japan, and I happen to know she also was for some time at Xerox Park, where I was before she was. Mimi.
4: Oh, great. Right. I'm going to try to... It's... I just have pictures from Japan, that's all. It's nothing. Huh? You don't think I can play it off the... No, should be okay. so is that the hang on boop, boop, boop. okay so okay I'm sure I'm sure let's start there <laughs> so what I wanted to talk about a little bit today is some of the ethnographic ethnographic work that I'm doing with uh, young fans of Japanese animation and games as a way of introducing the topic of the collective imagination and how it's playing out in the digital age, and also to introduce a little bit of issues of learning and how kids are growing up in new media environments. So the premise of my work around the collective imagination is just the simple fact that we're growing up in an era where there's really an abundance of media reference in our everyday lives, and that these media reference are being mobilized in more varied ways and in more varied settings. So I'm interested in the ways in which we form very personalized, customized relationships to media content, particularly with the advent of digital media that allows um, amateur production, appropriation, remix, and that kind of thing. But it's not just that we're increasingly able to customize and personalize our relationship to media, but also media has become the conduit through which we link to a larger and shared body of knowledge and culture that really exceeds the grasp of the individual. And it's that dynamic that I think is really interesting. I'm interested in how the individual mobilization of a collective imagination is becoming more and more the mode through which young people conduct their everyday social transactions and communications. And now this has been something that's obviously been around for as long as we've had music and stories. This is part of the sharing that we do is that we reference these collective sources of knowledge and culture. But I do think that we're living in a time where there's been a qualitative shift Um, and uh, qualitative change in the forms of media through which we're trafficking in this kind of content, ranging from everything like Tamagotchi. I don't know if people have been following the current generation of Tamagotchi, which are really awesome because you can wear them around your neck, and they're little tokens that kids recognize, and they can beam information from one another. Um, And, you know, things that are probably more... Uh, known to people in this room, like YouTube, where linking references to video, both amateur and professional, becomes a way of constructing and performing your taste and your identity online. So rich media content... Oh, I keep forgetting about my pictures. (laughs) So rich media content is becoming this vocabulary through which we traffic um, and, and communicate and share um, it's the way that we try to tell other people who we are, what our interests in are and how we like to affiliate. And I've been calling this process hypersociality. So it's social, life-sharing, communication that's augmented by a dense set of media signifiers. Um, so I think this might become clear with a specific case of some of the things that I've been looking at. Um, so, Pokemon. Um, I think what's important about the new media environment that kids are growing up in is that it's not just an abundance of media reference, but it's an abundance now in the different forms that media takes. Um, So it's not that old media, quote, old media are going away, but like Henry has been talking about in convergence culture, it's really about the relationship between narrative media forms, interactive and digital media forms, and then the internet as this communication space for traffic and sharing. So in Japan, the industry calls this the media mix, and Pokemon is kind of the perfect example of that. And I think what's interesting um, in particular about the case of Japanese media mixes is the fact that portable media formats like the mobile phone, the Game Boy, the PlayStation Portable, and trading cards have really been positioned centrally as... um, the uh, drivers and the content circulation mechanisms for the media mix. And um, this is important because it means that the practices of engaging and sharing media are migrating out of these contexts that we have traditionally associated with larger screens and stationary locations to a wide variety of settings in everyday life. So... Pokemon was really a breakthrough media form in a lot of ways, partially because it did position portable media so centrally. It was really the Game Boy game and the trading cards. This is not... Pokemon, by the way, but (laughs) Um, was at the center of the equation. But what was also important was that it boosted the complexity of form and content of children's media to levels that were really unprecedented. So before Pokemon, people thought that for children's media, you had to rely on a relatively small stable of characters, simple narrative content. Pokemon demonstrated that kids could master a pantheon of hundreds of characters, each with its unique characteristics. Uh, the other thing that the industry learned um, at once Pokémon took off was the fact that the social exchange and hyper-sociality was really positioned as one of the central reasons for why the content was so wildly popular. So if you ever... I mean, how many people have sort of experienced Pokémon, either trying to learn it or with children? Okay, So if you've been around children who are engaging with a series like Pokemon, you'll know that there's sort of this intense exchange of information that goes on when they're engaging in it, as well as an actual exchange of physical media, um, trading cards, beaming Pokemon between Game Boys and things like that. And I think this is extremely important from a learning perspective as well as from this perspective of um, collective intelligence, in the sense that kids have this realization that they're participating in a collective imagination that is greater than what they can master on their own. <coughs> and that the, the premise of the whole design of the media system is that the learning is going to happen in a group social setting. And that is fundamental to how kids, I think, are engaging with these complex um, <coughs> media formats like... Sorry. Um, So I think that's uh, fundamental to how kids are engaging with these new media mix formats and the ones that have come after it like Yu-Gi-Oh! and (coughs) Beyblade and Digimon and I think that It seems like these everyday exchanges of children are very mundane and perhaps not as spectacular as something you see in Wikipedia, but I think in many ways it's the broad base of participation and modes of participation that are going to build these broader systems. I think that's the last picture I have. Oh, that's a picture um, from the comic market in Japan, which is actually, um, I'm curious how many people have heard of that probably much fewer. Um, It's actually the largest uh, trade show in Japan, which brings together 300,000 young people twice a year, um, all around buying and selling amateur comics. On, so yeah, I just pulled it on, this. So now it's gonna, it's mad. <laughs> yeah, I just had something going down the wrong mm-hmm. way was talking. <clears> that now? Huh? Uh, do, you, do you need
1: that?
0: Oh, now? no. No, I we just, don't need to. Okay. <laughs>
1: Okay, so thank you for some very uh, provocative presentations. Uh, I think I'd like to start with a question about good and bad. (laughs) So Trevor kind of raised the question of ethics, and at least to my ear, uh, at least one of the main points of Trevor's presentation was that one of the things that's very common in the world of uh, media and what you might call collective intelligence media is that big, rich, powerful corporations co-opt all the free labor of poor, helpless masses and take advantage of them. Maybe I've overstated the case a little bit. Uh, But uh, I think at least you were making uh, a point that that there's at least some danger of something that you would consider bad happening there. Whereas the other two speakers I heard talking mostly about things they would consider good. I heard Corey talking about a lot of examples of collective intelligence in Second Life, and Mimi talking about a bunch of examples of collective imagination in kids' culture. So what I want to ask all three of the panelists to do is talk about an example of something the opposite of what they said. So Trevor, I'm going to ask you to talk about something good about big corporations and free media. And for the other two of you, I'm going to ask about, is there something bad, or can you imagine some downside of the things you told us the good sides of?
2: Well, I think it's really important for this argument to actually not push, us, push it to this extreme, which is really not what I said at all. It was not; an, it was certainly not an
1: anti-business my, my, argument. My job as moderators is to stimulate no, controversy, nice. very, uh, <laughs> even if I have to do it by my own stupidity.
2: <laughs> no, no. What can you do in seven minutes? Um, no, I think it's—I uh, think the to, you know, live up to your expectations. Uh, I think people really enjoy the simplicity, the uh, convenience, and the ease of use of something like MySpace, uh, and the features, right, that are supported by um, by a backbone that you know is sophisticated and can afford to support the sociality on that scale, right? Um, on the downside, however, <laughs> um, I you think just my had m- to sneak that in, right? <laughs> um, well, on the downside, it's really the. the if you think of uh just you know a few years back you had basically people have there was a real much more decentralized web, right? Where people had uh their sites, you know, they experimented with their code, there was a lot of creativity, you know, sites would break, the HTML would break, uh they had like some small host in California, you know. Uh and now it's really a massive amount of people, you could say uh, you know, like arguably, if you say 170 million as one of these data for MySpace, which is, um, you know, tricky to measure, um, you see certainly what happens and that there is a problem with that, that there is this monopoly and the centralization of the web that, and this is only what I'm talking about, I'm only talking about these core sites, right? I'm not talking about the mom and pop store and I'm also not talking am against business. I'm only talking about that there's a problem with the centralization of these core sites that gives them a lot of power that can be very easily abused and I don't think that the centralization is a good thing. Of course not a very popular argument because it has actually to do with us and not uh, with you know, something that's sort of removed from us. So I'm aware of that.
3: So can I not answer the question also? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> sweet. Um, so something something bad about distributed stuff. Um, well, so actually, I can talk to that not uh, from the second life perspective, but from perhaps from the London lab perspective. So we you know we have one hundred and forty employees at now five locations, um, soon to be six as we open an office here in Boston to do development here as well. And one of the things that's interesting about that is our internal um, development culture um, and this is both development and, and non-product development roles is that your, your, your job as an employee in Linden Lab is to choose wisely and then execute well. So choose wisely means pick what you're going to do um, and be collecting data about what you're going to work on and choosing, well can, you know, choosing wisely can include things like well I'm just going to do what someone else tells me for the next month because I don't want to have to be thinking about all the global issues but the idea is think about what you're going to do. Then once you pick something execute on it well. You can't say, well, I'm going to go do something, and then um, halfway through go be like, ooh, look, shiny object, and be distracted and go away because other people are counting on you to execute. And what's tricky in that kind of environment is when you do want to do uh, global changes in direction or when you do need to move very quickly, it can be difficult. Um, it is hard also sometimes to get large distributed markets to sort of effectively build bridges. I mean that in the sort of metaphorical sense, right? The, the public good, but for everybody who actually engages in the bridge building, it's a, it's, a, it's a loss for them. And so how do you build additional mechanisms around that to encourage people to engage in the unpopular tasks when people can be like, well, you know, I know it's really important to build the new customer service tool, Right? If, you're in, if you're a programmer and you hear the word tool, you're immediately running in the other direction. You heard customer service, you're really running in the other direction. Right? How do you incent people to do that in a culture that isn't built around some manager just saying, hey, you, do that? Right? And so I think that, that definitely raises some challenges. Um, uh, they're, not, they're not insurmountable, but they, uh, you do have to consider them if you're going to try to operate in that manner. Good.
4: So I actually liked your question, so I will answer it. <laughs> okay, you did. So um, because it gives me an opportunity to raise some of the classic moral panics around Pokemon and to sort of, you know, make it clear that I don't agree with them, but I can. But I think it's actually the mainstream view is that Pokemon is actually radically bad for children and kind of, uh, you know, most debased and uninteresting and stupid media form that you could think of is sort of, you know, the common wisdom among adults who probably have never tried to play it and have realized um, if you ever sit down with a group of four-year-olds and try to learn how to play the card game that very quickly they're kicking your butt and you don't know what's going on and that there's these complexities in the game that are not really visible to outsiders but the um, part of the moral panic that I think does really um, feed into very deep-seated fears about what's appropriate for children is the fact that it gives children a space of autonomy, activism, and sort of financial entrepreneurship that people feel is very not age-appropriate. So that we've been so invested in the modern era with the idea that childhood should be quite separate from certain forms of activism and mobilization, and that when kids are engaged with that level of intensity with these kind of media forms, people find it very threatening in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of the moral panic around Pokemon was really not about the content, which was actually pretty cute and innocuous, except that these little cute things are fighting each other. Um, But the fact that it was tied to these more entrepreneurial narratives of childhood that people didn't think was appropriate. Yes. To
3: to riff riff on that for just a second. One of the other things that will come out of doing distributed um, processes is you're going to run into the amateur amateur expert collision, which is amateurs being out there figuring stuff out and doing things very well and reminding you that amateur does, does not mean incompetent, right? Amateur means uncredentialed, right? Amateur means they don't have the lingo of the, community that the, of the community of experts, right? All of you in this room are experts, almost certainly, which means you have degrees, certificates, lingo, and ways to set up a barrier between the area of expertise and that of the amateur. And so what's interesting is watching, especially within Second Life, people moving into fields like therapy and neurology and business and coming up with these really interesting ideas and then suddenly running into the experts and and generating uh, excitement at that point.
2: Well, one argument I think in this context actually of collective intelligence is also that it maybe really doesn't matter what people say so much, you know. Maybe it really doesn't. It certainly doesn't matter, you know, if they are like. <laughs> there's no association of the bloggers for you, know, for me, with a left wing or right wing attitude, or like, you know, particular people who know a lot about the subject. But I think what what really matters about it is that it's so many people, you know, and that they experience themselves as speakers, right? As uh, Yochai Benkler points out, and I think that's a really uh, that is really a good point, and that may, you know, may. Even lead to more participatory politics, right? that people experience now, a uh, like fifteen-year-old has four hundred thousand people who listen to her, may actually do something.
1: Okay, why don't we go to the audience for questions? What's on your mind? Yes. Yes, not the... Tom, the, you have to paraphrase that for the, for the record. Ple- people, please use the microphones. Oh, okay, good. So uh, for this one, I'll paraphrase for the others. If you can come to the microphone, that would be good. I think the, the point you're making is that uh, these phenomena that we're talking about are not phenomena that, are, that have never existed, like scientists have read each other's papers and commented and built, it on, built on them for centuries. What's new is that these old processes are happening with a new medium at a new scale, sometimes at a different speed and in different ways. So I think that's absolutely right. There's, in some sense, nothing new under the sun. Uh, but uh, when the sun gets a lot hotter or colder, <laughs> things sure feel different.
3: Well, there's, there's, for, for if you want to read a devastating critique, or oh, devastating in, in quotes, critique of user-created culture, uh, read the 1800s reviews of the novel. It, it reads almost exactly like critiques of Pokemon and video games and, and everything else, because these were unprofessional writers creating things and putting ideas into people's heads. It was very scary.
4: But I think the other part of the question, which is the fact that there is this shift towards the democratization of these kinds of processes, which were traditionally conducted by the elite, I think that's an important point. Um, I, I do think that there's always been peer-based knowledge cultures that haven't been considered legitimate. Um, but what's interesting in the amateur and pro collision is the fact that they're playing in the same space. They encounter each other now. And that's what makes things extremely interesting. And that's why a site like YouTube is extremely interesting because it's an, these... Sites for all their problems, they aggregate these processes and they also make visible the kind of informal communication and negotiation that um, was like among academics. We know what it means to have an esoteric peer based knowledge network. I mean, that's we're just like kids playing Pokemon, there's nothing different really about what we're doing. You know, it's like niche, you know, esoteric knowledge that only a small group of us really care about. I mean, so that's what's happening. And it's always happened in all these niche hobby communities as well as professional communities. But I think, like Corey was saying, what's interesting is this collision so that suddenly you have you know, video production that's spanning the pro standards and the amateur standards and these crossovers happening. So
1: let me, let me push that question a little further. We've seen examples of how amateurs are doing things we used to think could only be done by professionals. If you go to the extreme, the question is, do we really need professionals? Is there anything we still need experts for?
4: Well, experts and professionals are different yeah. too, right? Okay, that's so, really right the way then. I mean, I think that expertise is something that is very much alive and well in amateur communities, but I think it goes to these questions of commercialization and commodification, actually, that Trevor was raising, that it's a certain disciplining of activity that is aim towards certain outputs. To me, that's what defines the difference between amateurism and professionalism, not necessarily the quality of the work. So for example, we're doing a study of amateur video remix creators, and a lot of these people have day jobs as video producers, right? Mm. So they occupy multiple identities, but they don't have the same freedom to engage in certain work or illegal work or you know, whatever it is, whatever the reasons are that they have these multiple identities. And so it's not really a, a, a difference in the skill set or the disciplining of skills and practices, but it's more that political economic structure that I think there will always be a need for professionalism in that vein, and, you know, Corey looking over the shoulders of his staff and making sure they <laughs> produce what needs to happen. That, that, um, I, that I don't
3: do. That was, that was actually the whole point of the, <laughs> no, the, the yeah, risk, yeah, actually. Yeah. But yeah. we beat them regularly. <laughs> so.
2: Well, uh, journalism Journalism is another argument, right, where this, this, in, in this whole discussion of uh, you know, citizen journalism versus citizen media, right, uh, that uh, Eason Zuckerman brought up, I think that's a good... Uh, it's also it's a very good point that you know there is of course still a place for actually a journalist that is paid to you know go out there for eight hours, which is a very different thing than somebody uh, reporting you know on a on an issue and not having the resources to actually do uh, investigative journalism. So that's truly okay.
1: Good. Let's go to the question. And if anybody has questions, please feel free to line up at the microphones. There's one on either side of the, the room here.
5: Hi, I've got a, a, a couple of uh, themes that I'm picking up here would, would like a, um, some feedback on. Um, with regards to open source, and uh, for uh, Corey, in terms of Linden Lab, what, what's the perspective in terms of uh, incorporating open source, both from the server and the client side? And, um, and then separately, um, um, the comment that Mimi was making around uh, the collision and Pokemon, et cetera, What I'm uh, curious about from a comparative standpoint um, is how in Japan are adult educators relating to uh, youth and the the pervasive use of uh, media as compared to the United States? And I I raise that issue um, one as being an educator myself, having taught in high schools and using video games and media literacy type of activities, et cetera, film production in the class, and then having adults Uh, educators, um, administrators, and stuff, not seeing that as real education. So I'm curious how that also plays out in Japan.
3: So on the open source question, obviously we're um, tremendous supporters of open source. We open sourced the Second Life client in February. Uh, We can't actually keep up with the patch submission rate at this point. Um, You know, we had a a community that was actually kind of waiting for that. Um, As we have announced, our plans are to uh, re-architect so that we can open source the servers as well. Um, After all, you know, the point of Second Life is to allow people to use it for whatever it is they want to use it for. And the best way to allow that is to have a fully open source product, although, as you might imagine, there are um, technological and security issues with open sourcing the servers, so we're trying to correct those first. Uh, The good thing is is that the changes we need to make to achieve scale, uh, we're currently deploying, um, you know, 600 servers a week, or 600 simulators a week, 120 servers a week. Um, and that gets scary quickly if you're a technologist like I am. And so the changes we need to make to support that kind of scaling happen to also enable open source. So our goal is to sort of get there as quickly as we can. Um, Open sourcing the servers is a ways off, though.
4: Yeah, on the educators' attitude questions, I'm not particularly well informed about the discourse of education in Japan, but I can talk a little bit. I do a lot of interviewing with parents, and I think that the U.S. has a much more firmly established anti-consumerist attitude among the middle class and the upper middle class, which is not the case in um, Japan so that there's a general more tolerance you 'll see media characters and schools and things like that and it 's not considered um, quite as debased a cultural form as you see here um, among which is very class differentiated in the us and Japan for whatever, there's plenty of sites for class differentiation, but children's media consumption is not one of them, whereas in the U.S. it's one of the primary sites that people use to do class distinction, and I think that's very unique in the U.S., or maybe Euro-American context, I'm not sure.
0: Okay. Well, we've talked a lot about, you know, and used the word democracy as far as the media goes, and and a lot of the examples we talked about were democratic Product development, uh, democratic research, things like that. Um, and this might be—I think it's an impossible question to answer, really. But can can you guys speak to the difference between this democratic process that you're talking about and the seemingly un- undemocratic process we have, you know, politically, where people vote against? You know, I'll use the example of the Iraq War. People vote against the war and elect Democrats, but we can't seem to stop a war. But we can—we're we're able to, you know, democratically alter the lobby of a hotel? I mean, that's a tough question, I understand, but can maybe speak to the different paradigms there?
3: That collective intelligence can't overwhelm individual stupidity? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's,
3: there's the motto. Oh, you want a non-flip answer? Um, <laughs> gosh. Um, well, first of all, I, I don't think I use the word democratic in how we do development at, at Linden Lab. Um, I would say that it is... Um, decentralized, um, it uses markets, um, it uses a lot of different features, um, but it's certainly not development by voting, and it's certainly not development by majority rule either. Um, you know, again, it's, it's interesting to have tried some of those things and, uh, and then reach a point where, where you have, oh, this scaling issue is going to cause us to have to turn out the lights and go home if we don't fix it. But it's not fun to work on and it's really hard to explain. There are times where um, kind of getting the, the small group together and just saying, look, we have to go do this, um, ends up being a really good way to solve problems and attack problems quickly, um, while it doesn't seem to be the right way to do all of the development we're doing. So, you know, we're trying to use, we're trying to be not religious about our choice of tools and how we do development and make decisions. Um, we obviously have far more flexibility than, say, a government would in doing that, because citizens don't like it when governments are randomly, you know, choosing different mechanisms all the time.
2: But I think your question also uh, sort of brings up this uh, question of, you know, sociable media for social change, right, uh, this kind of relationship between the sociable web and I think that, two politics, real, sort of, real-life politics, and there's, of course, like a plethora of, um, uh, you know, examples, you know, for instance, uses of uh, Twitter for uh, human rights, uh, uh, purposes where people who may disappear in, in a prison, you know, while Twitter, you know, arguably is a utterly silly thing in America, at least, you know, in a human rights context, in uh, you know, in an authoritarian regime, this may be very different. Uh, because actually to know when somebody went where, uh, you know, may help if they suddenly disappeared, right? Um, or, you know, other examples, change.org, you may, may know, which basically linking, you know, the people to, uh, who are willing to give money to a particular cost to a very specific group. Um, I mean, there are endless uh, examples. Uh, are they, I think they take into account that this this slide with which I started out, uh, which basically shows this move, right, of sociality to the web, sure. which I think is uh, important. And I think politicians also for the next uh, electoral, you know, uh, campaigns realize that, of course, uh, they battle, you know, who had their Flickr account first, you know, Obama or Hillary. I mean, if you're interested in this, I, I have endless amounts of examples of that. I'm really interested
4: in it. I also think it's important to distinguish between mobilization and democracy. So that I think some of the, you know, those are really nice examples that kind of span, actually, those two categories. But a lot of the stuff that I'm looking at is actually examples of how these technology tools enable people to take on leadership and mobilize around stuff. Which And the process actually doesn't look very democratic at all, but it does look bottom-up and emergent in some way. But whether that conforms to our ideas of you know democratic participation and everybody having a voice, I don't really think that's the case. I think it's about highly motivated individuals having the tools to cobble together particular um, platforms for getting stuff done.
6: Okay. Um, one of the nice things about this presentation is that there's a coherence that all of you in some ways are thinking about peer production, collaborative production in the context of a commercial, Post, right, <laughs> if, we, if we say it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and one question I had, I'll, I'll, I'll frame it in a, a point to Mimi, but I think it applies to all of you. When you were asked, sort of, what might be the downside of the Pokemon story, I completely agree about the way that kind of moral panics around kids' autonomy. The one that strikes me is that Pokemon's um, imperative, built into the game, built into the cartoons, is collecting more and more cards. And that makes you a more <laughs> successful player, and it becomes the motif of the cartoon, and the characters are themselves collectors of a sort. Um, and it strikes me that if we have to think about commercial hosts of collaborative production, one of the commercial imperatives is let's make sure we will keep participating. Yeah. And you mentioned that in, in a sort of second life area that yep. you still need new users, and you still need to have certain imperatives about making it a viable place. Um, and I wonder if that connects to this question about the inability to exit, right? I wonder, if, uh, I wonder if you can comment on that as a question. If we're gonna deal with peer production with commercial hosts, is, is that where the tension's gonna be about needing to get people to play and get people to keep playing.
4: Yeah, no, I think that's a really nice way of framing it. I mean, it is the inherent tension, but it also points to the differences between, say, the stuff that Trevor and um, Corey are talking about and something like Pokemon, which is built on a very fickle population that it's really easy to exit from because you're not, Um, pouring your content into these systems in the same way so that the intelligence of a system like Pokemon really resides in the social networks that kids produce, um, the knowledge networks that they produce, that they transport from different media series very fluidly. So it's like Last year it was Yu-Gi-Oh, this year it's Beyblade, and there's continuity at the social layer, but not at the host layer. Now, that doesn't mean that all the anti-consumer critiques of these systems are totally wrong. I mean, I kind of do understand where that's coming from, but I also think that they sometimes overshadow the fact that, you know, it really is about... Um, You know, and I think Henry talks about this a lot in the relation between fans and media production is that it's not a unidirectional equation of exploitation either. So
3: So it was interesting. When we announced in 2004, 2003, sorry, that we were going to allow users to retain intellectual property rights, uh, Yochai Benkler, who wrote Wealth of Nations, which I assume many of you have read, um, stood up at New York Law School and made an impassioned argument for how dare we bring the worst of the real world law into this utopia that we had created and that this was just the stupidest possible thing we could do. And he, he, he actually made you know, incredibly articulate arguments, as, as Yokai is, is, is wont to do, um, along those lines. And it's been interesting to talk to him sort of over the intervening uh, three years since then where capitalism in a zero marginal cost environment is a different uh, beastie in some ways than what it is in the real world, and so so that's one aspect that's been kind of interesting to watch is is how that plays out. When it's ten dollars to start a multinational corporation, you may be more inclined to try. Um, you know, there are a hundred companies that make up the Second Life developer community at this point. These are. When, when some large company says, well, we want to build something in Second Life, they don't just go do it themselves and they don't just go to the users, they go to the developer community. And those 100 companies employ 1,000 people. Um, they have an aggregate run rate of like $30 million. 99 of those companies came out of people role playing inside Second Life, and just sort of playing around with being designers, builders, con- contractors, consultants, and so, and trying to do these these very real-world kinds of tasks, and then realizing they were making so much money that they better move out of doing it all in Linden dollars and move into the real world and do it in dollars, so. And, you know, on the the, the exit, what's interesting is, you know, there's a, there's one incentive when you make a space to say, well, we want to make exit really hard, so that once somebody's in, you know, we have them forever, you know, and... <laughs> But what's interesting is there's actually a, a, a push in the other direction, which is you know, right now Second Life is operated by one company. If we go toes up, Second Life, turn, it turns off, it's over. And for folks considering coming in in a big way and really investing their, their time, money, and effort, <laughs> they're balancing that risk against their, their comfort level and us staying around as a company. Right? So part of our reason for open sourcing is while that does allow an exit strategy for people, it also means that even if we, are to, even if we end up not around anymore, which I'd really be unhappy if that happened, but you know, even if that happens, Second Life will still continue to exist and people will be able to write exporters and importers and all these other things. So I think you know, oddly there's actually a very strong reason to allow that and to make sure you design that into products when you're bringing people into them.
2: Um, I don't know how much this relates to uh, your question, but I, I think what I would be really what I would really like to see is uh, a kind of open source, not for profit MySpace, you know. Uh, and I could give you many reasons why that would be a good thing. You know, it's uh, that makes it easy to leave. Uh, that uh, you know does not confront you with uh, you know Fox News news feeds, and um, and endless amounts of uh, reasons for this. And basically. And not to—I mean, this is just to be very clear. You know, I'm certainly not condemning these people on these sites at all, right? It would be the stupidest thing ever to say, basically, oh, you know, you can't meet in public in the public sphere, uh, and now you're meeting in MySpace. You know, how horrible of you uh, on on Rupert Murdoch's uh, ground, right? This is ex- not what I'm saying. But um, you know, this would be a, so. If you know, being at MIT, you know, sign up. <laughs>
4: yeah. I just wanted to relate this conversation back to the issue of professionalism, too, because I think it is a question about what kinds of content production and software production are best... produced through a professional model versus an open source or highly distributed model. And I do think that in the case of certain forms of content creation, and Pokemon's a really good example of it, is it's really great because of the professionalism and how it's been rolled out in multiple media platforms, licensed really nicely. I mean, it's just an incredibly well-produced media franchise that would be impossible to do as a collective enterprise in the same way. Well, well I'm not sure, but what about Craigslist,
2: right? 450 cities... Uh uh, how many of a million people a day uh, I mean that's a huge amount of sociality as well
0: I mean no really but really I'm impossible?
4: talking I'm talking about the the production of narrative media and this is something that yeah. I've debated with Yohai because he's much more I mean he his cases are in you know he talks about content that works as the content, not the software platforms and peer production as things that are easily decomposable into parts that are aggregated in particular ways. So Wikipedia is a prime example. And he was saying the difference between the enormous success of something like Wikipedia, which is an encyclopedia-scale entry, versus the real difficulty of open-source text, textbooks, for example, which require a much more sort of disciplined, professionalized practice—it doesn't require, it, but it's just harder. Um, so, if you look at Japanese anime series, for example, they run for like, you know, two to ten years. You know, and can you really expect amateur production to? provide a certain narrative coherence. And it's important that water-type Pokémon have particular characteristics that are consistent. It's not something that is, um, you know, easily managed. Whereas, you know, something like what you're saying, an open-source MySpace seems to be, like, a really good example of something that could be done and that makes sense as a public infrastructure and good. You know, and I think that's kind of the model that you're trying to work on here, right?
3: It, it's interesting having had actually almost exactly that same discussion with, with, with Yokai. Um, so there, there are, of course, some counterexamples. Red versus blue, um, amateur-created uh, machinima that's been made for how many years yeah, at this point? Anymore, do they? they don't count as amateurs anymore, but certainly the first couple years they were. And so, But this is an interesting question, right, is right, if you right. become so good during the production process, yeah. what does that mean? Um, but again, that's
4: a fairly contained. Yeah.
3: But, yeah. but it, well, and, and it's interesting because we all pick it as an example, right? In the game space, the example that everyone picks is Counter Strike. Um, you know, the, there's no question that game development and game tuning is a big part of why Pokemon works, and that is hard to do. I mean, most of the competitive, professionally developed card games have also been crushed by, by Pokemon. So I'm not actually sure that that is an expert amateur divide, but it seems like there is something to the time commitment required um, to do continuous development, that there is something there, which I, yeah, I sometimes wonder if it's simply you're getting paid to do it in one case, and you're not in the other, and you have to eat, you know? Yeah.
2: But, maybe wouldn't you say that, like, this is... I mean, I'm not familiar with uh, Japanese toys, but uh, on the American side, you have... Uh, a lot of uh, toys and also other networked objects that, uh, you know, like Macintosh rolling out this uh, thing that you put in your, this Nike tool, which measures your, uh, you know, weight loss and how, ma- how fast you ran and how far. Nine and then you can plus, upload it to yes. the Nike <laughs> site and uh, compare with your friends who, uh, you know, was, uh, ran further. And, uh, and this is, of course, choose. also the case with, to- with, with uh, tools, right, uh, with toys for kids. Uh, like web kids, for instance, right mm-hmm. um, or um, other I think there's a there's a huge booming thing, right Internet of things and networked objects, I think which also really comes uh, to kids and very much does create a similar sort of centrality on the web, which is very much linked in tight end with these um, you know big sort of uh, you know corporations like Nike in this case uh, and I could wouldn't it make sense to sort of uh, bring forward a proposal to also in that area to uh, actually strive for non for profit models and not to say that this narrative structure of it actually excludes it. I mean, it's maybe, I don't know. Do
4: so, you want to give a quick answer? Oh, yeah. I, I think it would be interesting to consider more hybrid models where you could imagine that certain parts of the content are produced professionally but there's network component, And I think that there are some models of that, although I'm kind of blanking on it right now, where there is sort of uh, more, you know, like it happens tacitly in Japanese media that they, they, that fan-produced content is tolerated in a lot of these spaces, so it, it's a, it actually happens, that kind of hybridity between professional and amateur media, but it's not really orchestrated systematically, I think.
1: So we're close to the end of our time. Let me suggest that we do quick questions and quick answers for the three people who are standing up. And then we'll then we'll be out of our time.
7: All right. I don't know if this is quick, but I had a question about the uh, <laughs> the the, de- the definition of intelligence, really, and 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 the desired outcome. <laughs> yeah. Can you answer that? Um, the the desired the, the desired outcome of intelligence when we talk about collective intelligence. Now, of course, if we get a, if we get a, a large enough group of people in a room and we have them, you know, guess how many jelly beans are in a jar, they're going to get it right 100% of the time, right? Um, but but if we're talking about things with more nuance, um, then then they're not gonna, then they're not necessarily going to get it right. It's like a, it's like a jury. If there's ten people that that this is Cass Sunstein's argument, if, you know, if there's ten people in a ten people in a room that the two people that don't agree are going to m- more than likely go with the go with the majority. And so the so the question is, I mean, is there a kind of tyranny of the masses that is going on simultaneously when we talk about things that aren't objective? So we can we can label craters, but but can we can we Can we do other things just as well, I guess?
1: Well, uh, I'll give a first and maybe quick answer to that. I've actually been doing quite a bit of reading just recently about that, including what's the definition of intelligence. Hmm. Um, uh, It turns out uh, way back in the 50s and even earlier, there were many studies by social psychologists about group tasks and how well people performed. And you can divide different types of tasks into different categories. If you have a unitary task, that is a task that can be done by a single individual, then the performance of the group depends on what kind of aggregation method you have. Some tasks like pulling a rope uh, are additive. And so uh, the the task depends on just the total of the people you have involved. Other tasks are what they call disjunctive, uh, like uh, having everybody climbing a mountain together, uh, the task Depend, or the speed depends on the slowest of the climbers. Uh, other tasks are conjunctive. Actually, I think I've said it the, the wrong way around, but other tasks are such that the speed or the ability depends on the best of the performers. Some are what they call discretionary, like the jelly bean guessing contest where people can often, where errors on one side cancel out errors on another side so more and more people work better. But that's not always true. Only some tasks have that. And those are all examples of unitary tasks. If you have more complicated tasks where different people play different roles, then it's so complicated nobody quite knows the answer. So uh, sometimes groups are better than individuals, sometimes they're worse. There's lots of really interesting possibilities, but we don't have good theories for all those possibilities. That's one of the things we want to do. The definition of intelligence, by the way, that I like best is, it's the same as the Supreme Court definition of pornography. <laughs> that is, you know it when you see it. Okay. Do you want to do a quick question?
5: OK. It's probably better if I'm first, because I hate for us to end on a negative note. But um, but as kind of a negative question, one of the critiques that often gets leveled at these discussions of collective intelligence and participation is that the flip side is that um, the same kind of media models and strategies get used for what people generally, re- generally regard as very negative things, for instance, the creation of terrorist networks. So my question would be, I'm less interested in those kinds of simple critiques that just say, oh, you guys are all too positive, and more interested in, you know, how do we use the knowledge that we obviously have, a very vast knowledge of the, the productive, you know, the positive aspects of collective intelligence to think... Critically, you know, not, not necessarily as like law enforcers, but as you know, academics or concerned humans, about these kinds of negative uses of media models, media strategies. That's really more of a statement.
1: Though. I'd say, if you want a quick answer, anything that is powerful can be used for good or ill.
0: Yeah. That was a question. <laughs> <a laughs>
1: Reminds reminds
2: me of uh, Bruce Bruce Sterling had this uh, uh, argument where he where he broke up that uh, uh, but talking about networked objects that you know given to a sort of democratic government it can be great to empower its citizens and you know would be the most amazing thing to run a concentration camp. <laughs>
8: so. so I have a question or comment for Trevor and Corey, I guess um, and maybe the conference. Um, you were talking about exit strategies on Facebook and, and suggesting an open source model that might allow for that to a greater extent. I'm thinking it's not really whether it's open source or held by a corporation that's the issue. It's that you've got your entire social network there, and that would be Perfect. the same if it was an open source system. Well, what you'd probably need for there to really be an, I mean, for you, me to really control my data on Facebook, would that it was completely decentralized, I think, which, like my blog, for instance, which Corey says, is a megaphone on a hill without community? I was searching, so I've been twittering and uh, searching Technorati for <laughs> for uh, posts about the conference. And one of the most recent blog posts on the global uh, water, on the web on the hill with a megaphone huh? is someone who wanted to be here and so showed up in Second Life. And unfortunately, all he saw was like the quick time loading icon for 45 minutes. But as you said, there were a, a, well, there was a photo at least of one other person there, and they had a conversation. But um, he pointed out that he still has no idea who Dave, you know, Linden or whatever really is. So is that community? And it's a oh, bit hard to answer this actually. in, like, a sec, but...
3: Well, so there, there are a few questions there. I mean, the, the, the end one on the, the identity question is, is really, I think, kind of interesting. Um, and I guess the, the quick answer is um, in those 1,000 employees in the developer community, 50% of them were hired having never met in the real world. They're hired based on just their performance in a virtual world, collaborating, building things together, and the identity they had built around their virtual identity. So I would say absolutely that that's a real community.
2: And to your first point, um, I didn't talk of open source. I talked of uh, you know not not-for-profit models. So that's not necessarily um, the same thing. And here, you know, I think there is a there is a real difference being. Um, Having a captive, uh, you know, being a captive audience in a not-for-profit uh, place that has transparent rules and uh, gives you full control over the content, and uh, being a captive audience in an, um, or a captive group of participants um, in a space that will suddenly do things that you don't agree with. You know, when I uh, showed this news of uh, MySpace introducing uh, news feeds uh, to my students, they were outraged. Um, and they didn't really care about being used. And this, this whole argument that I tried to make about uh, being this utilization, they said, ah, you know, capitalism, you know. But this, but this, you know, this is a different story, right? Because now you, you, you can't leave, right? I mean, it's the same in Facebook. It's not an interoperability. It's not that you just go from one place to the other. Because all your friends are there and, you know, everybody from your university is there and you cannot just go. And this is, again, how I would uh, you know, interpret these massive protests in Facebook as well.
1: Any last words? Actually, why don't we let each panelist have one quick last word, and then we'll end. <laughs>
0: um.
4: <laughs> what do I say? That's so hard. <laughs> um, well, I I think that, for me, the panel was helpful in thinking through some of these issues about the relationship between um, you know, the professional production and the commercialization issues and the user generated content and participation, the relation between those. And I think that is probably the big crux of um, the socio political issues that need to be worked out. And it would be really interesting if we had more innovation at that layer. So we're seeing tons of innovation at the layer of social exchange, communication, amateur production, but really, like, not very many interesting things at the layer of. Um, you know models of you know how to resist certain forms of privatization of platforms and things so except for your world Corey you're the exception and that's why you're here
7: (laughs)
3: Um, so help come help us uh, build our collective intelligence if you know any good programmers Uh, we need them desperately and we're hiring in Boston so help make us smarter you know, in terms of, I, I do think the, the, the pro-amateur question is is just going to continue to become bigger. Um, you know, the, we've already seen, you know, Craigslist is such a great example, and Craig talks about this all the time, as the, the Internet is this sort of force multiplier of the individual, of being able to do all these more things. And as you move from text into 3D and interactive experiences, your design space becomes that much vaster. And so... what what they're teaching each other, what they're trying to do, the kinds of businesses they're forming, the kinds of things, the way they're not forming businesses, the money they're raising for nonprofits, their activism, their coordinating, um, all of this is becoming uh, very, very capable. And I think how, you know, people who aren't in those spaces interact with it is going to be very interesting to watch.
2: Well, that's hard to match. well, I, I think I just sort of want to end by, by saying that, this, you know, that I did not try to make a sort of anti-consumption or anti-business argument, just to make this clear, because I think it's very easily pushed to, the, to, to an extreme where I really don't want to go. Um, but I, that I do think that these core sides, you know, that there is a problem with the centrality and that it makes, um, that sociable media make people
1: easier to use. So the thought I'd like to leave you with is... As I'm. (laughs) So I'm sitting here looking at the audience here, seeing, what is it? I don't know, maybe 100 100 people or so, 120 maybe, um, thinking about all the intelligence sitting in this room, not just at the front of the room, but all the way to the very back of the room, and wondering about how much of the intelligence, the individual intelligence in this room, was actually captured in any way even remotely approaching collective intelligence in the last hour and a half or so we have spent together, I find myself thinking, we probably captured a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the intelligence in the room. And so the question I'd like to leave you with is if we had the equivalent of this event five years, 15 years, 50 years from now, what would it be like And how much of the collective intelligence of all the participants could we actually capture?
3: Why didn't you ask that question? (laughs) Thank you very much. That one I've got an answer for.